we are starting a expository preaching series on the book of Colossians. And the key word that we're going to focus on over the next few weeks or the next couple of months really is fullness. Um, you know, we're, we're going to have a potluck in a little bit. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday is synonymous with overeating and overindulging and snacks. And I think something like uh, 5 billion chicken wings are going to be sold today or prepared today. I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating on that number. Um, at the end of the day, you probably will find yourself very full. You know, just, ah. Oh. You know, and if you're like me, you're getting older and eating that food. It's not the same as when you were in your early 20s. Like when you were in your 20s, you eat that stuff, you don't skip a beat, right? You know, oh, okay, now I'm going to go for a jog. But now, like in your 30s and in early 40s, you're like, oh, I got to take a nap. And, you know, I'm done till tomorrow. Forget the game. I've just already eaten too much food. Um, that type of fullness is not the fullness we're looking for. Even though we're familiar with it, um, that type of fullness never really leaves us satisfied. Once we get to that point or we cross that threshold from from being full to overindulging, you know, then there's guilt and there's, there's you know, the, the negotiations with your body. I'll never do this again. And, you know, it's, it's never this idea of being perfected or completed. And that's the, the meaning behind the word fullness that we're going to find in the book of Colossians. Because having a relationship with Jesus is not just about redirecting your team affiliation, you know, Football players, baseball players, all the time, they, they, they start on one team, they get traded to another. And they simply go from one organization to the other, and they change their uniforms, and play basically the same sport. When you become a Christian, it's not quite like that. Um, you, you stop playing the same sport that the world is playing. You're moving into something brand new. You are being changed and corrected, and you're being uh, refashioned to be like Jesus. And so everything you've known about life kind of gets tossed aside. I mean, of course, you still breathe and wear clothing and go to work. I mean, those things stay the same. But how you see the world completely changes because you now begin to see it through the eyes of Christ. And so things that you didn't consider sin before, now you realize the depravity in it. And the things that used to um, uh, discourage you or that were for you, they just didn't do anything for you in Christianity, you begin to see the beauty in it. You know, just something as simple as God's law, you begin to see that a father loves his children so much that he sets up boundaries to protect them, not just not to limit people, but to protect them from going outside of those boundaries and getting hurt inevitably. And if you've ever broken any of the commandments of God, which you have and I have, you realize very quickly that there are consequences for you, there are consequences for others, and it's not a good day. And so Jesus comes and changes all that, and now we can find this fullness, this not only a satisfaction, but a completeness in Jesus. And the, and the big spoiler of it all is that that completeness, that satisfaction is found nowhere else. You know, Mike sang a song. It's one of my favorite worship songs, um, especially if I'm by myself, and that's uh, uh, Take Me In to the Holy of Holies, this whole idea of wanting to know more about Jesus and get to that, that place where it's only you and him and that relationship uh, is fully experienced, at least this side of heaven, as much as you can. And so as we go through Colossians, we're going to read a letter from Paul, the apostle, to this church in a place called Colossae or Colossae to respond to, to how they are living as Christians. One thing I want to note about this book, and today we'll just do the first couple verses and we'll do some background on, on, on Colossae. 
um, it's a very gentle letter. You know, you read other letters and, you know, Paul says things like, I wish those people would emasculate themselves. You know, that's pretty harsh language, you know. And, you know, give those people, you know, give this man and that man who have been coming against the church and coming against the teaching uh, of the word, you know, give them over to Satan so that he might, uh, so that they might see the depravity of their situation and, and repent. You know, very harsh. But in, Col in Colossians, in the book of Colossians, you find a very gentle uh, Paul. You know, you get through almost two chapters before you find uh, correction. The first couple of, uh, of chapters is only a four-chapter book. It's sort of doctrinal issues. And then the latter half is – excuse me. I <laughs> almost fell over. Uh, the latter half is practical. How do you live that out? What does that look like? There's advice for husbands and wives and children. Uh, eventually, we're going to talk about slavery because this book, this letter deals with slavery and masters. And there's a lot of misconceptions about slavery that we've got to kind of iron out in the church. Um, because sometimes that's used against us uh, when it's taken out of context and that sort of thing. But this book, as Paul writes it, he starts off very, very gentle. And there is correction, there is rebuke. But overall, the way that he approaches this church is somewhat different than the way he approaches other churches. Um, this church in Colossae, it's in modern-day Turkey. Um, this city no longer exists. It was destroyed, some say, by an earthquake. Um not real sure if that's what happened. We know that it was destroyed at some point. Um, it's never been excavated. It's never been truly, you know, dug into to find, you know, artifacts and that sort of thing. This church was started by a man named Epaphras, um, which means uh, which means love, but it's it's a pagan version of that word. So this man was a pagan convert to Christianity and planted a church uh, with Paul in this place. And it's near a place called Laodicea. Now, how many people here are familiar with that name? Right? It's the it's the it's the uh, it's the it's the bad example of what a church should be like. In the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus calls for these seven letters to be written to these seven churches, and the last one is a place called Laodicea. And in Laodicea, in this church, they're called a, a lukewarm church. And so Jesus says, "I'm getting ready to spit you out of my mouth." Uh, I would rather you be hot or I'd rather you be cold. This whole lukewarm business in the middle doesn't really do anything. You know, it, there's a call for us. If we're going to be Christians, let's throw ourselves into it. Even if we don't know what we're doing, just throw yourself into it. Or stand back and do nothing and have your questions. But don't try to, don't try to be, you know, in the world and of the world. Don't try to be both, you know, be on both teams. Try to, uh, through the power of Jesus, to just forsake the old life, and pick up the new life, and then walk with Jesus faithfully. This middle-of-the-road stuff Jesus is not really keen about. Through Colossae was this stream, this cold, refreshing stream that is the contrast that, that Jesus may be using in the book of Revelation to tell the people in Laodicea who would recognize, okay, I understand cold water, refreshing, crisp, hot water, you know, uh, cooks food, it sterilizes, but this middle ground is where, you know, lukewarm water, it, it usually brings, uh, you know, it's like boggy swamp bacteria grossness. And so we want to be one or the other, hopefully not cold either, but Jesus apparently prefers that to lukewarm. The book of Colossians was authored by the Apostle Paul. This has never been questioned. Uh, it's a pretty uh, easily... Um, uh, research thing to find out whether or not he actually wrote it. Uh, some books of the Bible, like the book of Job and some of the prophets and, 
and even like the book of Hebrews. We're not sure who wrote them. We can't find uh, any concrete evidence that it was written by any particular person. We assume that you know books like Isaiah were written by Isaiah and that sort of thing. But the authorship of Colossians has never been questioned because it's been handed down through tradition and through oral history that that's who uh, wrote it. Men like um, – oh, I can't think of their names. Um, Mike usually understand, uh, remembers these things for me. Polycarp. Thank you. That's one of them. Uh, what was the other guy's name? Starts with an O. No? No, that's the slave guy, isn't it? Oscar. Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird. And no, but men like Polycarp, uh, men who were uh, successors to the apostleship or successors to the apostles in that first century church, uh, they are ones that continued and handed out information to us. Um, something that I'm looking forward to researching is that some, at the end of this book, Paul says, uh, take this letter and share it with the church in Laodicea and then read the letter I wrote to them. No, I, in our Bible, we have no church to the Laodicean letter, no, no epistle. So I don't know if that was just lost to history or what. It's something that will come out towards the end of the study or the end of the, the sermons. As we read the epistles, you know, sometimes we, 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 we water down the word by simply turning it into a list of do's and do not do's. You know, okay, don't do this. Like when we get to chapter, I think it's three, maybe four, where it says, you know, husbands do this. Uh, wives do this, children do this, it's pleasing to the Lord. I, we could simplify it by saying, okay, these are, these are rules that we have to follow as Christians. But one of the things we, we can mine from this is that, okay, the people in Colossae, they had a hard time with the definition of the roles that a man and a woman had, the position that children had, how uh, servants and slaves were handled within the church and how masters handled them. There was a need for correction because however they were doing it was not only displeasing to the Lord, but contrary to the word. And so Paul has to write to this church to correct them. And correction is always a hard thing. Sometimes correction is a good thing. People hear it and go, you know what? I hear what you're saying. Makes me not happy, but I realize I got to improve myself or do something. Or it cuts the other way. What do you think you know? Who do you think you are? And it hardens their heart. And so certainly as this letter is being read, there are some people who are like, wow, this Paul guy just gets us. And other people are like, who does Paul think he is? And that's where we pick up at the start of this, this uh, letter. In the epistle to the Romans, Paul introduces himself not only as a, an apostle but as a servant. The word is doulos. It means, it means a willing slave to the Lord. He says, I'm, I'm a servant. To the Lord, I, I'm a bond servant to God. It means that he has willingly given up all of his freedom for the freedom that's found only in Christ. He doesn't introduce himself like that here. He introduces himself simply as an apostle. Now, it probably stems from the fact that at this time, he's in prison. He's writing this uh, epistle from a jail cell. I don't know about you. I've never been to jail. Praise God for that. Maybe some of you guys have. Nobody's judging. I'm just thinking that the last thing I'm going to want to do if I were incarcerated, especially wrongfully, because Paul was incarcerated for the wrong reasons. He, he should not have been. Um, the last thing you're going to do sitting in your cell is say, you know what, I think i gotta, I gotta, I got to help some more churches. It's a great move of the Spirit of God to take this broken vessel who's now in a jail cell and direct his attention towards these churches that have been planted in, in what seems like just a few a span of a few years. 
Paul introduces himself as an apostle to the church. It's, it's not to supersede Epaphras, who's the pastor of that church. It's to show his position and, and how he even has the authority to do anything. He points out that I'm, I'm an apostle by, by the Lord. Now, this is a real tough area for me. And there's going to be a real upfront about this. Um, in our modern day, we have lots of people who come up and they'll say things like, I'm an apostle, or I'm a prophet, or I'm an evangelist, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a pastor. When people are seeking after a title, usually a red flag goes up for me. It's like, why, why do you want that position so badly? Yes, you, you feel called to do it, but if you're not given that position, how does that change your ministry? I have, I have strived for it, and, and by the grace of God, uh, have failed many times, but by the grace of God, have just strived to do ministry. Regardless of the title, regardless of the, the house of worship, regardless of where I'm at, just if I'm at a place and someone needs help, we're going to minister to them. We're not going to make them wait till Sunday. We're not going to make sure they're within the church walls. We're just going to minister because that's what we've been called to do. And sure, failure comes along, but at the same time, we, we strive to do our best because the Lord has called us to do these things. Paul doesn't have to present himself as an apostle. His account and how he became an apostle shows us his calling, if you will. And so often what I generally do, if someone comes and tells me, well, I'm a prophet or I'm an apostle, then I just watch and say, okay, I'm going to watch your lifestyle. You know, are you going and helping churches? Are you starting new churches as apostles do? Are you doing the things that the apostles did in, uh, in the first century when they started churches and had fellowship and, and things like that? Is that what you're doing? Or are you using a title to lord yourself over other people? Are you using a title as, as, a, as a lever to get leverage to get into places uh, faster than most people would have to work up into them? And so I just say that to tell you, and this will be uh, reamplified, I believe in verse 2 or 3, uh, Paul talks about people who um, have visions. And people go, oh, you had a vision? And they just take their word for it. You know, we as Christians, we are called to be uh, innocent of the world, but not naive and gullible. Somebody says they have a vision. Okay, we're going to see how it plans out. You, know, you see guys on, on television all the time, I had a vision and this happened. And then it doesn't go that way. Oh, well, the Lord intervened. What? That's just, you're just, you're just, <laughs> you're making an out for yourself. You're making a backdoor clause. So if, if, if your prophecy doesn't come to pass, which the Bible says that if that happens, the Lord's not with that person. Um, then you can just kind of sneak out the back door unscathed. You know, the prophets of the, the Old and even the New Testament, they never operated like that. They came out, they boldly declared the word of God, and then they just let it happen. So, okay, the Lord told me to say this. This is what's going to happen. And they'd be like, no, it's not. They're like, whatever. I'm I said what I needed. I did my part. And then it would always happen the way that God had predicted or that God had prophesied. Verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, Romans 3, I believe, says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's this position we find ourselves pre-Jesus. We are born into sin. We are born sinful because of our ancestry through Adam and Eve. And then we grow up, and then we sin. You know, uh, my children have sinned, and I didn't teach them how to do that. And I sinned, and my mom and dad didn't teach me how to do that. It was inherent in me. It was there 
uh, from birth. The Bible says that our flesh is corrupted. It's tainted. It's, it's broken. It's a mess. Prior to knowing Jesus, that's our status. But then we meet Jesus, and something happens. Something that, for some of you, is very dramatic. If you're like me, it wasn't as dramatic. But it was like an explosion. The old blew up, and the new came up out of the ashes of that. You were born again. Now, just as a side note, we, we, we were watching politicians and stuff kind of give their spiel, and they're trying to curry us as, as Christians. They're trying to pretend that they're ultra-Christians. If they're not born again, it doesn't matter. They aren't, they aren't Christians. They can be Christians by name, but if they're not born again, they're not regenerated by the Spirit of God. And thus, they're just going to get, they're going to try to swindle us. Whether they're on the left or the right, it doesn't matter. Okay, I've mixed politics and church all in the same day. It's going to be a good time. Okay. But my point is this, um, once we meet Jesus, once the truth of the gospel, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to it, and we're like, oh, Jesus is not just a man who lived really well, not just a good teacher. He is God, and he became a man, and he died for my sins because I'm a sinner, and my good deeds aren't enough to make up the sin that I've done. And so now I have Jesus, and the Bible says that that's a born-again moment where you you come from the dead and you come to life. It's a beautiful, glorious, awesome thing that's only found in Christ Jesus. But notice how Paul, now now I can get real stern, but, oh, you're a sinner, give your life to Jesus. And, you know, that's a biblical thing, maybe not being so harsh, but it's truth, right? Here's how Paul, here's how Paul addresses these people who, for the most part, doesn't know uh, he's only heard stories from Epaphras and different and Tychicus who have brought reports to him about this church. Here's what he's, here's how he addresses them to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ. Church, if you are born again, this is how God views you. You are not your sin. You are not your mistakes. You are not your proclivities. God is in the process of washing you out of uh, washing you of those things. It's a, it's a pretty cliche thing to say, uh, to say now that I'm a work in progress when we fail, right? The, the, the truth behind that should be that we, we are showing progression. God is changing us. But before we get to the place of complete sinlessness, meaning we no longer sin, and, and just as a spo another spoiler alert, that happens when we die from this life. Um, he sees us as he sees his son, faithful. He sees you as a saint. If you grow up in Catholicism, this blows your mind that you are a saint because you've been taught that there are certain saints um, to pray to for certain reasons at certain times. The people at Colossae, one of the things that infiltrated was uh, angel worship, and uh, they believe that uh, the archangel Michael saved them from, uh, from a disaster at one point, and Paul has to address angel worship later in the Bible. Um, but as you give your life to Jesus, you are seeing God sees you through a new lens. In the way that you see the world through a new lens, he sees you through his son. He sees you as a saint. What does that mean? That means you've been set apart. You've been separated. You didn't separate yourself. You didn't do anything that made separation possible. God took you and pulled you out from where you were. See, so often we struggle trying to get separate, you know, trying to trying to change our life, trying to start new habits and start this, start that, struggling against what God has already done. 
Pastor Mike said this morning, we, we, we walk in the favor that we find in Christ Jesus. We don't, we don't make it up. We don't try to make it happen. We simply know and exist in that truth. You are favored of the Lord, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Christians are filled with hope, not just because you know, they turn a blind eye to all the things that are happening, but they realize that Jesus has done everything to make them forgiven and holy and pure. And there are some who will take that as license to do what they want. And honestly, the church doesn't control that. You don't control that in other people. You can only control that in you. Well, I had a friend and I grew up, they said they were Christians and they sinned all the time. Okay, but what about you? What about you? Where are you at? Do you feel the condemnation for your sin? That's a good thing. Let me take that back. The conviction for your sin. That's a good thing. Romans 8 and 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus anymore. That means if you've been forgiven, it's not like Jesus is ready to kind of spring judgment upon you for your past sin. Like, oh, there's a moment of weakness. Bam, there it is. I've been saving this judgment and condemnation for just this moment because I knew you were going to fail. No, the Bible says it's been washed away. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says it like this, Though your sins were as red as scarlet, they are now white as snow. They are now, you are now pure and holy, not by what you have done, but, what, but by what Jesus has done. See, Paul could, have, Paul could have started off with, you guys are worshiping angels, after all Jesus has done for you, you guys are you know, going back to uh, festival worship and, 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 and circumcision after what Jesus has done for you. He could have just started right off the bat, just railing against them. Instead, he comes to them and says, saints and faithful ones. Because that is their position in Christ. So the question is, are you in Christ today? If you're not in Christ, you are outside of all of this. You're looking into it. The only thing that prohibits you from moving forward is you at this point. Nothing stands in your way from becoming engaged with the Messiah, the risen one, the Holy One of God, Jesus. We worship Him, and His name is the only name where every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. It's He's the one that will come again to rescue his church, to take the faithful ones and bring them to be with him, that he will be our God and we will be his people forever and ever and forever. And that begins now. But if you're not in that today, then you're on the outside. You're the opposite of Romans 8 and 1. Condemnation still hangs over your head. How do you get rid of that? You come to the Lord in repentance. You see, if you, if you are cognizant this moment of coming to the Lord in repentance, here's what's happened. It's not you going to the door and opening it and going through. It's the Lord opening the door and saying, please come in. It's the Lord inviting you to repent of your sin. He's died for that sin. Do you see how, how pointless it is for him to die for your sin and then give you the punishment again for that sin? To just bring you into a life where you are continuously destroyed for no reason. It's pointless. Why would he have sent his son to die on a cross, a horrible death, just to punish you again? doesn't make any sense. Here's what does make sense. God himself took the punishment perfectly because even that we were going to screw up. The Bible, when it talks about sacrifice and this perfect lamb, it demands perfection. 
for the remission of sins, for the for the washing away of sins, for the for the complete cleansing of our old life, it demands perfection, and we just don't have that outside of Christ. But who does? Christ himself. Christ himself dies in our place perfectly so that we might repent of our sins and accept this offer of grace that he has for you. And if you're a big Bible nerd like me and you run into something like Calvinism or Arminianism and you don't even know what those words mean, that's okay. But if you do, you know, it, here's here's what it comes down to. Does, does, does God call you or do you choose God? Here's what happens. God calls you and you choose God. It's all of it. All the things. If you give your life to Jesus today, it's a miracle, parallel, you know, unparalleled in the universe. Now, well, what about healing the sick? That, no, that's a miracle. But you giving your life to Jesus, that is the greatest miracle that will happen in your life. And if you do that today, new life begins for you. Maybe you've fallen away and maybe you've, you know, I, I was walking down that path and then something happened and I stopped. Well, today is a day to give your life to Jesus. Not because God sees you as filthy and dirty and, and sinful, but because now in Christ how he sees you is as a saint and as faithful. You know, in pastor of this church, probably shouldn't say that. I'm not faithful. I'm not faithful every day, every minute of every day. You're not faithful every day. But Jesus sees us as faithful. Why? Because of himself. You go to the book of Ephesians, this phrase, in Christ, occurs like 30 or 40 times. And in all of the New Testament, it's like 200 times. In Christ, in God, in Jesus. It's this idea that, that in the same way a letter goes in an envelope, we are in Christ. We have been enveloped by him. And now it's his righteousness and his perfection and his love and his grace. And it's all about him. And it's very little about us, if at all. See, when you start to see yourself as God sees yourself, life starts to change. You no longer accept what the world wants to offer you. you know, we had that whole Powerball thing a couple weeks ago. People lost their minds. Like, oh, I could be a billionaire overnight. Just people went nuts. And for the Christian, if that's where you find your hope, you need to start reading your Bible a little bit better. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Would it be nice to win that much money? Of course it would. And you'd pay a lot of taxes and you'd buy a lot of junk and then still be in the same place that you once were. You just have, you know, a different lifestyle. But our hope is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Money's going to come and go. We're going to gain and lose fortunes. We're going to have cars and lose those. We're going to have raised family and they're going to go away. But where are we left when it's just us and Jesus? Are we filled with joy because I have Jesus? Are we filled with joy because... If everything else is taken away, I've got him and he has me. This is what we're aiming for. This is what we're shooting for. It's an ideal. It's high. But it's what God is calling you to. And when you give your life to Jesus, you are filled with new hope. You begin to look at the world in a different way. You start to see, okay, these things aren't to be abused or used uh, to fulfill anything in me. They're just meant to be used to live my life. Now my car is a great source of transportation. It's not a it's not a symbol of my status anymore. You know, the, how big my truck tires are no longer represent who I am. Christ represents who I am. You know, I added another zero to my paycheck this week or this year. And so look at me. But now you find Jesus like, oh, I have ability to help people who don't 
earn or have a job like I do. And now I can use that not only to take care of my family, not only to take care of myself, but to take care of others as well. I'm really good at this, or I'm known for doing that. It's all identity talk. And if your identity is found anywhere but in Jesus, you're going to be really disappointed someday. Well, I'm known for making, you know, the best ZD. Well, guess what? You're going to meet somebody who makes better ZD than you. And then your identity is going to be crushed, and you're going to be like, oh, my life. You know? If you lift weights, oh, I can lift, you know, a thousand pounds, which I know that's unrealistic, but if you're going to go home, you know, go, go big. Well, I can lift 1,100. Oh, my identity washed away. I'm a really good mom. I'm a really good dad. I'm this, I'm that. But you're always going to find somebody who's better or bigger or stronger or just different than you. If your identity is wrapped up in that and not in Jesus, you're going to be crushed. You're going to be crushed. You know? I'm the one that always does this in the church and then somebody else wants to do it. Oh, they're, they're encroaching upon my territory. No, they're not. They're putting their hand to the plow like you are. Problem is your identity is found in that thing, not in Jesus. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And that's my prayer for you today. As we read through um, the book of Colossians, as we go through this expositional sermon series, which will probably take a few months, even though it's just four chapters, I would encourage you to read Colossians every day. Pastor Tony, read a whole Bible, a book every day? I clocked it last night at about 16 minutes. I was tired because it was right before bed and I wanted to make sure I tried this and I put it off all week. Finally did it. I was tired. I did not want to read and still only took me about 16 minutes. If you do not have 16 minutes of your day to commit to Christ, you have to seriously and radically reconsider your schedule. Some of you This might not be quality time. I wish that we could all go sit under a tree and close our eyes and have butterflies flutter around and have these big aha moments with the Lord every single day of our lives. And we will have those days. But for the most part, it's going to be like grinding out the monotony and just saying, you know what, this is what I've committed myself to do. And it's 15 minutes before bed. You know, For me, I've tried the whole waking up early thing and I fall asleep. You know, and I just don't think that's any more quality time than anything else. But find a time. Practically, one of the things I had to do was start reading on my lunch breaks when I was working a, you know, a regular full-time job. I had a half-hour lunch break. I'd read for 15 minutes and then eat for 15 minutes, sometimes at the same time. And it was an early morning shift. Sometimes I'd do eating and reading and then sleep for 15 minutes. Or like 20. Got called in a couple times. Um, my point is this. If you don't have 15 minutes in your day, Start looking at your schedule again. You know, how, how much time, and this will be the convicting part, how much time are you watching Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or whatever else is coming out this week? You know, I can tell you right now, I watch too much. You probably do too because they just let you keep watching back to back. It's like, hey, are you still watching? It's like, hey, why do you care? Put on the next episode, buddy. People not laughing don't have Netflix. My point is this, okay, if you don't have Netflix, how much time do you watch television? Well, I'm watching the news, or I'm watching Jeopardy, or I'm watching, you know, NCIS, or whatever else is on TV. Okay, those are good things. Nobody's nobody's saying stop that completely. What we're saying is, if that's taking time from the Word, then you've got to start making choices. And so, read Colossians every day. Do this. 
Maybe you can't, maybe you can't get 15 minutes out of your day. Maybe you're a mom and you're running like crazy every minute of the day. Break it down. Read a chapter in the morning. I clocked that in at three and a half minutes. Read a chapter, at, you know, around lunchtime, a little bit later. Take your Bible with you in the car. Waiting for somebody? Hey, crack open my Bible. Look, I just read a paragraph or a chapter or I got all my reading done because this bozo was late. Look for ways to do this. We're all busy. There are days where I can sit aside a half hour and just go sit and pray and think. But most days it's like it's like pulling teeth to get that kind of time. So you have to adjust your schedule. You have to find ways to do that. Be a problem solver. Right? Find a way to get this done. Pray about this. Lord, I need more time, but I only have 24 hours. What do I do? And see if he doesn't provide you an answer to read the Bible more. I have to believe that if he wants you to read his word, he likes that kind of prayer. It's like your kid coming up and saying, Dad, I want to clean my bedroom, but I can't find the broom. Like, well, I'll help you find the broom. Like, let's get, let's get going on this. Let's capitalize on this moment. I believe that if you come to the Lord with the request, Lord, I want to read your word, but I can't find time. I have to believe he likes that question and wants to honor that request. Read the book of Colossians daily. You will become more familiar with what Paul has said or what the Holy Spirit has said through Paul to us. As we come in on Sunday mornings and are, are hearing these sermons, we'll, we'll start to we'll become more acquainted with it that much quicker. And you'll watch your life change. You'll start to see these things kind of come out of you like, like a pot that's boiling over. It just can't help but come out. You start living this lifestyle rather than trying to adapt to it. The good news is that it's not all up to you, and we'll close with that. The good news is that the best saints are made from sinners, and the best saints and the most faithful are the ones who simply fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I can't do this. Paul says in chapter 7 of Romans that there's that which I ought to do when I end up not doing that, and that which I shouldn't do, and I end up doing that. And, and so I, this principle of the law is working in me, and, and what a horrible wretch of a man that I am. But, he says, it's Jesus who rescues me from that wretchedness. It's not all up to you today. It's up to Jesus. You just simply got to lay down your life as a living sacrifice. Let's stand and pray. Praise God that when he looks at us, he doesn't judge our sainthood or our faithfulness based on our actions. He judges us based on our faith in Christ. So where is your faith today? Lots of people believe in Jesus, and that does not translate into faith. The Muslims believe in Jesus. They believed him to be a prophet. Lots of religions accept him as a teacher. Most people realize that he truly existed. And to actually say that he did not exist, people would look at you like you're crazy because there's so much historical evidence that he existed. But is he God in your life? Does he rule and reign in you today? Only you can exercise faith today for yourself. So here's what we do. First, we're gonna, first if you want to go down this road, surrender. Just put up the flag, wave it, lay down your life. Lord, I'm done. I'm done trying to be religious. I'm done trying to be legalistic. I'm done trying to get everything done myself. I'm tired, and I'm, I'm tired of being tired, and I need you. And then we repent. 
gosh, this Lord, this is who I was. This is the direction I was going. I want to do a 180 and walk away from that towards you. I want to be loved by you, Lord. If you're a guy or if this is an uncomfortable subject, I, this is something I struggle with, just being loved by the Lord. When we talk about being faithful and being a saint, saint I, I want to argue with Jesus. No, you don't, you don't know me like that. And, and that's ludicrous. He does. But how can I call myself those things when I know what I do and what I've done? Walking in the favor of the Lord, the truth that is as opposed to that which I feel about myself. Allow the Lord to love you. He loves you tremendously. If you're not saved today, He loves you too. The Bible says that He so loved you that He gave His life for you. So let's pray and let's, as we come out of this prayer, walk in that. Amen? Jesus, we all struggle with this identity of being a saint and being faithful. Because we look back at our life, we look at our actions, and we see unfaithfulness. We see ourselves as even being spiritually adulterous. We don't see ourselves as saints. We see ourselves as sinners. We see what we've done. We agree with your word that we indeed are sinners. But if we agree with that, then we have to agree with this truth, that you love sinners, that before we ever loved you, that you loved us, that at the perfect time, your word says, you died for us, that today we stand here in this church praying because of what your son Jesus did on our behalf. And so, Father, we surrender. Not because we even have the power to do that, but we just throw up our arms. We lay down our lives to you today. We repent, Lord. All of us have things to repent of. Some of us, it's, it's a bad attitude or pride or something, Lord, but we repent of it. We walk away from it. We ask your forgiveness for it. Father, we ask that you would help us to walk in your love. I wish we could flip a switch and just say, yeah, we're, we're loved and it feels good, but Lord, we all struggle with it. We struggle with the temptation of the world and what they have to offer to, to fill that need, to make us feel pure, to make us feel whole. Satan tempts us to find an alternate route or find a new way to you. Our flesh desires to do the worst of things. So, Father, I pray for transformation, to be born again today, that your spirit will come alive in us and begin to fight against sin and our flesh and Satan and the world that wishes to, to re-corrupt us. Your word says, Lord, you know, when you return, will you find anyone faithful? I pray that we are found in you so that the faithfulness you require will be found. We praise you and give you the honor and the glory you so rightly deserve today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um.